Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Anna Crean. Anna is an award-winning journalist and the author of Night Games and Into the Woods, amongst many others. Today she's joining me to discuss her first novel, Act of Grace. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ongoing connection to the land. Their stories are the original stories, and I pay my respects. Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture, as featured on 2SER. The Great Conversations podcast is a chance for you to hear more of these discussions. It's actually just one of the fantastic literary podcasts from 2SER. If you need a book recommendation, why not check out the 2SER Book Club, which releases every Tuesday, with stacks of great books to discover wherever you get your podcasts. Act of Grace entwines the stories of Robbie, Jerry and Nassim, taking us from their early lives into the present. Jerry grows up in fear of his father, Tui, a returned veteran who raises Jerry with a heavy hand. Robbie must confront her own identity when the onset of her father's dementia means that he no longer recognises his family. Nassim is growing up in Saddam Hussein's Iraq, where she attracts the attention not only of the dictator, but his cruel and psychotic son. Join me as we discover Anna Crean's Act of Grace. My name is Andrew Popel and I'm joined in the studio by Anna Crean. Anna is the author of the award-winning Night Games and Into the Woods, amongst many other titles. And today, I am very fortunate she's joining me to discuss her first novel. It is called Act of Grace. Anna, welcome. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. I am, I confessed off air, I am still working through this novel. I, I loved it, but it feels like the sort of novel that love, like there's so many complex emotions going on. I'm, well, I, I want to tell people about it. I'm okay. going to tell people about Go it. On. Act of Grace, it entwines the stories of Robbie, Jerry and Nassim, taking us from their early lives into the present. Jerry grows up in fear of his father, Tui, a returned veteran who raises Jerry with a heavy hand. Robbie must confront her own identity when the onset of her father Danny's dementia means that he no longer recognises his family. And Nassim, Nassim grows up in Saddam Hussein's Iraq and attracts the attention of not only the dictator, but his cruel, psychotic son. I am entranced by this novel. It's been one of those reading experiences. It's still with me. I'm very fortunate to have you here to help me process some of these Mm -hmm. thoughts. And I want to start with your three. This, this is a character-rich novel, and it seems unfair to, to just pick out Robbie, Jerry, and Nassim, but they are very much the threads that bring the novel together. Mm. They're very distinct characters, and the early chapters of the book are, are quite contained. Each character also represents these vastly different worldviews and experiences. Did they all begin for you in the same narrative space? Mm. Well, in a way... Uh they began with Tui, who you haven't mentioned, who was Jerry's father, who was mm. the returned uh, soldier. Uh, and I guess originally um, when I you know, set, decided, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to follow the novel, I was just thinking about him and I became obsessed with Iraq and um, under, you know, reading and researching all about um, our time in Iraq during mm. the Iraq war. And and that, I was only ever doing that with the intention of 
writing him up as a character. But then I had this really strange uh, few weeks in my study where suddenly I was in Baghdad, writing Baghdad and writing this Iraqi character. Um, and then Saddam Hussein became a character. And, and I really wasn't expecting that because I think part of me was still thinking like a journalist, like you, um, you do all your research, but you can't really write about where you haven't been. Um, and then I, when I, when I started to develop Nasim as a character and write about her time in Baghdad, then her flight through to Syria, um, I, I realised the huge leap that you can make with mm. fiction that you can't do with non-fiction. So what was that research like and what was that leap moment for you? Because, of course, of course I guess as readers we understand that not only can we make that leap, we rely on authors to do that for us. That's the mm. power of literature. But what was it like for you realising that you could do that? Uh, it was very, it was incredibly liberating. It was mm. fun. And it would also, it was about trusting my impulses. Uh, journalism really took a, a front a front sort of seat for me for so long. I always loved fiction, but journalism got all the green lights. And so when I did finally decide, okay, it's time to um, work on a piece of fiction, I felt like I sat in my study and found my fiction muscle really, really overweight, really flabby, really unfit. And I was like, oh my God, it's going to, I have to exercise this muscle because it's just so been so neglected. So I think for a year or two, it really was, I was just pushing and prodding and trying to understand it again and how to trust the path it was gonna, I was gonna go on. Um, and so my original process was very much like how I would replay, um, approach journalism, which was just pure and utter intense research and absorption into a world. Um, but then the process of typing was quite different. Can you think back or have you gone back to those earlier drafts? Does Nassim look different as a character before you you had that freeing, that liberating moment? Nassim was never a character. She was never a character. Ah, so, oh, okay. Yeah, um, so you were in Baghdad and it, was, it wasn't really populated in the way that it is now populated in Act of Grace. Very much so. I would never, when I sat down to write this, that was never... That was never part of the part of the deal. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nassim was not meant to be part yeah. of it. Hmm. That's fascinating. You've you've noted. I want to come. I do want to come back to Tui. There was a reason I've sort of neglected him so far. But <laughs> uh, you've noted that you began um, with Tui, his experience of of conflict and war really rages for each of the characters. Hmm. For Nassim, it is it is the war that she must survive. Hmm. For Jerry, for Jerry, it's the legacy. Of that rears up daily mm. into his violence. Yeah. But what really fascinated me um, was Robbie. And it actually, for, for me, or perhaps for the narrative, perhaps at least for Jerry, it takes Jerry's experience in America to show us how war can operate at the level of a government against its people. Mm, and this, right. this in turn, it speaks to the ongoing and the intergenerational trauma that Robbie and her father suffer 
Jerry, in the narrative, Jerry felt like a fool. Like, you really take us through this process and he felt like a fool for not having seen this sooner Mm. and for it having taken a whole whole nother continent to help Mm. him realise it. Um, What are your reflections on that? Is this a revelation we're still making or yet to make as a country? Yeah, I feel like... um uh, I think many of us would recognise ourselves in Jerry. Um, he has this, this experience and makes these friendships um, whilst travelling through America that make him realise that everything he has learned and everything he has accepted and assumed is questionable, um, all the way down to maps that he follows to get from A to B. Um, he realises that rivers aren't necessarily their original their original route through the land that they've been altered and um, rerouted and dammed and all those kind of um, we those things that we take for granted and um, our education mm-hmm. hasn't really dealt with or hasn't dared unpick and I do feel like Jerry is having that brain explosion of a moment when you're like oh my brain is nowhere near. Um, as ignited and as lit up as it needs to be. Um, it's I've been sort of just followed my nose through this dusty, banal path of education. Um, I haven't questioned anything I've been told. And then he, he hooks up with this really vibrant, radical, um, uh, in a clever crew of people in America and realises that nothing is as he thought it was mm. yeah we've jumped i realize we've jumped right to the uh, pretty much to the end of the book <laughs> it's i think we're sp- we're speaking sufficiently vaguely that we're not really spoiling anything and this is a narrative this is very much like the crew that jerry hooks up with i can't spoil that journey by telling you where where they end up mm. because this book is the experience this book is inside the the van day to day with them is yeah. is an analogy that I might not use again but it it you you have to feel your way through this book all of your protagonists they have a legacy of these strong parental figures mm. whose influence forces them to both confront but it also complicates their present and so I thought let's start with Nasim Mm. And I'm going to just note that I'm really unnaturally kind of teasing out narrative threads that are actually woven together in Act Act of Grace um, in just, just a way that just I loved. I loved. Mm. I can't tell everyone to go out and read the book. But uh, <laughs> So we have Nassim. Her mother is, is this – she's a lauded progressive poet under a mm. regime that tolerates no dissidents. That's right. Um, her commitment to feeling her art often leaves Nassim feeling – somewhat inadequate and this this is constantly reflected back in Nassim's piano playing which mm. she is virtuoso but her, is, is criticised by her, her mother for not having feeling Nassim also attracts the favour of a, a ruthless dictator's son who horrifically abuses her I don't, th- I don't think there are any words that I can use to kind of describe that and probably even for yourself that would have been difficult to approach with words mm. knowing the reality of, of that as you traveled with Nassim, though, did you get a sense of which of these was hardest for her to reconcile, and and how did you approach that? I think for Nassim, what sh- a large part of her struggle was, um, you know, being in the shadow of her extraordinary mother, an accomplished poet, um, but also the knowledge that her mother chose art over everything. Mm. Her mother chose art 
um, over family, over her their her own life, um, mm. over her uh, over Nasim's life. She put all their family in jeopardy um, by choosing her by choosing art and um, truth telling through poetry, and I think and Nasim um, by sort of constantly having to shake off her skin and renew herself um, was constantly in order to survive shedding identity and it was uh, you know she was literally a flotsam a piece of history that was being pinballed to these these whims and woes of a regime of her 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 mother her strong-willed mother um, and yet she chose survival. She chose it over her art. She chose it over her tr- over truth. And I th- think that that's a, um, I think that's a really important um, complex idea that maybe we need to struggle with more. Mm. Um, we're often um, it's sort of in progressive sort of cultural discussions, we're quite punitive in sort of this commitment to. Uh, a higher mindedness or a righteousness or a truth and that that, that doesn't necessarily um, it's not necessarily how people um, people people can survive people have to um, you know telling the truth is not always uh, it might be noble it might be briefly wonderful it might even get you a couple hits of dopamine on the internet mm. but it's not always successful in the long in the long view. And Nasim's experience, and so ultimately she she's able to flee Iraq. She comes through Syria. She gets to Australia, and her experience, her youth, um, that colours very much how she how she views the country. And mm. she has some some ideas that I think some people would would recognise the idea that mm. we're a very young country and we, we, we sort of celebrate our age. I think there's a moment where she's looking at a building that's, that's you know, marked with the date 1854. 1854. I was going to say 49. <laughs> um, that's because I was in Hobart recently and I was looking at a lot of buildings dating from 1849. And she thinks it's so young. It's so young to celebrate. But then she also has attitudes that I think others would, would find more difficult um, around the true meaning of of people wanting to flee and she she doesn't believe that uh, as a country we should be more open because mm. in her own heart she she knows what she has has had to do to get here um yeah so there's i yeah i really wanted to explore that you know that that i what australia would look like to such mm. an outside eye um that has thousands and thousands of years of history and um is uh and then to come to this country and go, oh my god! Like Nassim kind of thinks Australia is pretty pathetic, mm. basically. Um, it's celebration of a really, of base of maybe even not even being toilet trained in the history of time, basically. Um, you know, it's very a very young country in that sense. Um, not the actual continent and the original. Uh, people of Australia, but the country as Australia calls itself and the myth that we create. Um, but, you know, she is very, I mean, people often talk about this, how often the uh, the harshest judge on, say, a migrant or on immigration is, is migrants themselves. And 
I think it's in part that can be called a reaction to the knowledge that uh, migrants are not innocent. Um, there's this idea that you can only be you can only be worthy of help or humanitarian aid mm. if you present yourself as completely blameless and innocent and a victim. And you know, again, I think that's a really uh, simplistic view of humanity. Mm. People come with baggage, and they come with you know, um, they've some people, a lot of people have done things in order to survive that. Mm. Um, we would crucify should it find itself in our court of law because our court of law is still based around these bizarre premises of good and evil, mm. whereas, um, you know, the the history of so many countries and so many conflicts, you just can't, you can't sort of divvy it out as simply as that. Mm. And I guess the, those black and white, this good and evil notions, this sort of binary is is forever tainted by by its background because of course we have I'm, I, I do really want to come to Tui but I'm, I'm going to push him back just a little <laughs> bit a little bit longer um, but of course he he also has um, has acts that perhaps he hasn't you know faced fully in his past mm. that would be complicated by that that good and evil view mm. um, I did want to look at, at Robbie we've we've given short shrift to Robbie so far Um <laughs> She's perhaps one of my favorite, perhaps my favorite character. I, I I think I enjoyed following her story the most. Uh, so her father, Danny, he has, at a very early part in the story, he has his indigenous heritage forced upon him by a teacher at the school where he works. Uh, someone whom, I guess, to a lot of the country, you know, looks like a bit of a white hat liberal, best intentioned. Um, and you do complicate, uh, again, a clean relationship that we have with this teacher. But he hasn't, he hasn't chosen to seek this out. Then when he's in the home following the onset of dementia, he is reuni- reunited with his mother's family in a way that sort of almost he, he cruelly may never actually get to know them mm. because of, of the dementia that he's experiencing and... Mm. How does how does Danny's story though? Because it was it was very hard going alongside Danny and his story. And um, how does that impact Robbie though, and the decisions she makes? Because she then goes on to become an artist, mm. to engage across Australia with yep. with different people. Yeah, I Robbie is interesting because as same with her father in the sense that um, they are grappling with these um, very different ideas of what it might mean to be Indigenous. Mm. Um, you know, uh, in a way, having blood versus having culture. Um, and Danny had no culture. And so Robbie is um, grappling with who she might be and and what people would see her as. And her father, very early on before dementia kicks in, warns her to say that she's Italian. Um, to not even to not even bother going there because um, the the uh, the clothing of identity that people will keep trying to put on her just won't fit. Um, and but as she she is a feisty personality, she's an artist, and artists um, are seekers, and they're constantly seeking out identity. They're constantly. Um, trying to make patterns of stories and 
um, to evoke them in a certain way. So she doesn't say she's Italian, um, but she doesn't say she's Indigenous either. Mm. She is... Um, She's grappling with the history of the country and where she might fit in it. Does this have anything to do then with, I mean, I guess what we can see broadly is, especially in people who really want to wear their progressiveness and their wokeness like a badge, kind of a fetish, fetishizing of culture. I mean, there is, a, there is a moment in the book that I'd only just, just thought about where Robbie and Nassim are living in the same unit block and they meet. Mm. And I think it's pretty much their first interaction Robbie asks Nassim to teach her how to wear the headdress that she's wearing and she decides, she I think she pitches it as a project to mm. her university um, uh, tutor, <laughs> that she wants to wear it for a period of time. She wants to understand the racism. She, she in effect, sort of fetishises Nassim and her identity mm. to, to better understand it. And it very much looks like some of that you know, capital, sorry, lowercase l, liberal uh, sort of wokeness that yeah. I referred to earlier. Yeah, yes. And she and she she comes to that realisation that she ditches the project eventually. Mm. Um, but it, I also think that's a, it was a, it was a commendable, naive uh, process in a young artist's life is mm. how can I put myself in someone else's shoes? And, and that, the realisation can only be found through doing it and it might seem naive and it might seem stupid. But I wasn't, I didn't want to, I would never take that away from someone's Mm. um, journey of exploration. I think it's important for people to realise that you, um, to try and understand racism, to try and understand what it might be to be someone else, um, how simple things such as clothing and and Mm. outward markers can really affect a person's, literally affect a person's uh, path through the city, yeah. how th- those reactions will do take a um, toll, but also to recognise that it's far deeper. Um, identity is, is far deeper than any garment you might don. Mm. Um, and the, I mean, these, you, you, you can't turn it into an art project and say that you've got it. Yeah, and it just it, it strikes me that it it would be regressive if if every person to come to understanding needed to to take a little slice of experience with them. And mm. I mean, we we have a culture at the moment where across a broad range of issues, a, a large number of people struggle to just believe to believe people that say they've been the the victim of violence, mm. uh, believe people that are saying that they've suffered at the hands of something that others claim doesn't even exist. And yeah, just the idea that we, we have to somehow experience it or we need some some proof of it feels a little bit regressive mm. writ large. Definitely, mm. definitely. So this is a, this is going to be a plainly obvious statement after everything I've just been saying. As I read, I was constantly troubled by the ways uh, that I was feeling for each of the characters. I mean, I, I definitely... I definitely had a huge affection for Robbie. Um, Nassim's story couldn't fail um, to to touch me. Jerry Jerry was was interesting, but Tui. Um, I want to get to Tui, and I wondered how far empathy can extend. <laughs> what can I judge outside my own life experience, which is something we were just touching on? Mm. Tui, in particular, he troubled me because his story is is potted with its own tragedy, mm. and undoubtedly, he, as a young man, went and tried to do something that he believed was noble, that he believed was brave, that he believed was good. 
but his attitude is also repugnant. Mm. I, I, he is the sort of person that you would, you would have to take on, except you would probably be afraid of him. And I wondered though, is that him or is that me? Um, <laughs> did you want your characters to complicate the reader's sensibility in this way? Tui is is a. Uh, Tui is almost representative of of all, almost all my journalism in the sense that you often meet subjects um, whose behaviour is reprehensible, but you can't help but um, have empathy and a, a sense of insight into them, who they are, and how they came to be who mm. they are, and sometimes even connect, communicate, and connect with someone. Um, you might you might be talking to some. Uh, I've had experience where I've talking to, spoken to prisoners who have done horrible things and sometimes end up having a, a joke with them or a little mm. connection or a little chuckle. And I feel like Tui is that. He's. Um, I also feel incredibly sad for him. He's a man that um, is so knotted in fury and so completely barricaded from the people around him, uh, he makes life a nightmare for his son. He makes life a nightmare for his wife, but he is actually in the nightmare. Mm. It doesn't stop for him. And sometimes um, I feel sometimes that people are really punitive towards that, that they um, that people can be horrible and, and often with mental illness, um, it's not it's not a pretty thing. It, people can behave incredibly badly, um, can be nasty pieces of work. But I do think that sometimes it's important for us to remember that whilst we may brush against them and get a taste of that horror and that nightmare, it is important to remember that person who is sick, who's actually sick, mm. um, can't ever get out of that nightmare. And I feel like that's what Tui is. Mm. So, off air, we started off talking about your journalism and mm. then about fiction, the role that both of them play, the ways people engage differently with them. And I wanted to sort of close this, close this, this up with just thinking about how, for many of us, reading, narrative reading, fiction reading, it offers a space to glean meaning and purpose in a world that, that is so much bigger than ourselves. Some of us will never travel except through the pages of books. Mm. In reflecting on her mother's writing, and I, in fact, I think it was her mother's work and also um, one of her colleagues' writing, Nassim had a somewhat different view. Poetry, she sometimes thought, is mere rope, something you tugged at until finally, if you were lucky, a pail of water was hauled to the surface. Are we always able to overlay meaning on a text? Should we? Like, would you, would you have your readers do this to Act of Grace, to keep tugging until a pail of water emerged? Well, yeah, but I think it's the writer's job to put the bucket of water down there. Uh, <laughs> um, and I think sometimes you don't. You don't get a bucket of water. You just keep getting mere rope. Mm. And, um, yeah, I think some texts are difficult to get into, and I do think that... Uh, I was actually just mentioning this just before to someone who that um, I've had these experiences with novels where I literally say consider Heart of Darkness by Joseph mm -hmm. Conrad. Mm -hmm. I remember trying to read that when I was twenty, and seriously, having 
like I could look up from a page and go, I have no idea what just happened. I couldn't form the sentences. I couldn't put the words together. It was a complete and utter mystery to me. It took me 10 years to pick it up and go, oh, why was it so hard before? Like, I do actually think the reader um, needs to continually transform and change um, in order to receive uh, literature. And and if you might, you might not be able to get that bucket of water at a particular point in your life. But ten years down the track, you might try again, and the water is extremely easy to haul up. And you're like, wow, I can't believe. What's changed? Has the book changed or has I, have I changed? And, of course, it's the reader who's changed. Mm-hmm. I think that's something very much that um, is going to happen with, with my experience of Act of Grace and I think mm-hmm. for many readers. Uh, I'm speaking with Anna Crean. We are discussing Act of Grace. Um, and I hope, I hope I have instilled on you, the listener, just some of the some of the wonder and and some of the discovery that I got from my reading of this. Anna, thank you so much for coming in Mm. and helping me me work through um, (laughs) my reading of this. If only we could all be so fortunate. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Andrew. That's it for this great conversation with Anna Crean. Anna's new novel is Act of Grace and it's out now through Black Ink Books. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER and click subscribe in your podcast app. You'll get a new great conversation every week. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. So till then, happy reading.